Welcome to our special Elvis Week episode of Real Foot Forward, a West Tennessee podcast. This episode is made possible by the record shop at 114 West Church Street in Union City, Tennessee. Today's guest is Joey Selipek, chief meteorologist at Fox 13 in Memphis and a really big Elvis fan. She said, hey, this is Scott Williams, your host of Real Foot Forward, where every single week we talk about the history, the people, and the culture of our home here in West Tennessee. That song was not our usual intro song. It was Bossa Nova Baby, which is from the Viva Elvis Cirque du Soleil soundtrack, which was a remix. It's one of my favorite Elvis tunes. We are celebrating Elvis week in this episode of Real Foot Forward. I can think of no one who more represents the history, the people, and the culture of West Tennessee than Elvis Presley. And my very special guest is also someone who has has become iconic in the world of <laughs> Memphis. I have Joey Solopec here with me today. Welcome, Joey. Hey, good to be here. So Joey um, has has honestly become an iconic part of Memphis media, kind of like a today's Marge Thrasher, if you will, um, <laughs> is how I describe Joey. Um, right. And we've also worked together in a lot of different Elvis projects, and so I thought it would be fun for he and I to talk a little bit about Elvis. But before we do that, Joey, take us back. Take us back. Tell us about you and being from Memphis, and where'd you go to school, and tell us about little Joey. Yeah, little Joey grew up in Memphis, in uh, Raleigh, which is a, was a working-class suburb of Memphis, still a great working-class suburb of Memphis. Seen the kills, Raleigh, Egypt, the Memphis State University, which uh, is now the U of M. And then um, took some postgrad classes through Mississippi State to get my meteorology degree. I'm a meteorologist here in Memphis with Fox. And uh, just really a Memphis boy. I've, I've been able to travel widely for different jobs and, and excursions and events. Um, but I'm a big fan of Memphis and the Mid-South. I love this region. Now, what, what attracted you to meteorology? That's not something that a lot of people you know, early on when they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? You don't really think of that, but what, what got you into that? You know, I give, I give all that credit to God for sort of leading me down that path. Um, I I was a journalism major and got my bachelor of arts in journalism through Memphis and then was trying to fine tune what I wanted to do in journalism and ended up in television news where I basically had every job in the building. I started at the bottom as a uh, unpaid intern answering phones and then became a tape editor, then became a photographer. And then I natural progression was, well, you, do you want to be a reporter or do something else? And I was fascinated by weather and the way God has created the planet. And it just led into a deeper study. And the more you study weather, the more fascinating it is the way our planet works. And he's blessed me to be able to, I think I've been doing it now about 25 years. It's been pretty incredible that I still can't believe I get to do something I enjoy so much. To back up a little bit, you also, I know um, you were a fraternity brother of Dr. Keith Carver, the president of UTM, University of Tennessee at Martin. That's and right. so I have uh, shared stories um, about you that you probably don't want shared, you know, publicly, <laughs> but um, I know that you two were friends um, back in the day. So that's kind yeah. of an interesting connection. Yeah, good guy. And um, it's thrilling to see him do so well. Very proud of Keith. So uh, you're a meteorologist in Memphis. Uh, let's let's uh, switch gears to Elvis. At, at what point 
did you first become an Elvis fan? I can remember being a little kid and uh, I was a, uh, my mom was a single mom. And so we had to stay with like after school care at some lady's house. One of those deals where she kept some kids after school till working parents could get home. And I remember this one day, this woman who was really nice was just sobbing uncontrollably. And all of us kids were going, what is going on? And she was glued to her TV set. You know, we had like three channels back then. And it was this ongoing coverage because Elvis had just died. And, and again, I was young, uh, young enough to need someone to babysit a bunch of kids. But I just remember this feeling in the air in Memphis, not even as a kid going, something huge has just happened. I don't know what it is because I, I was not exposed to his music at a young age. But all these people are so emotionally traumatized everywhere I look. And, you know, it was like an electric, quiet feeling on the streets. It was really strange. And then, of course, the news coverage was 24-7. From that day on, I started paying attention going, who is this Elvis guy? And then I got exposed more and more to his music. And, you know, what's so funny, Scott, is you can like different types of music. I think a lot of people like different types of music. And Elvis did so many different types of music. You can generally find something that connects you to him. Plus, he was such a, I, I mean, we, we use these words so much they lose their, their magnitude. But when you say icon, I mean, the guy was just, um, he affected people on every continent and influenced how music was made by, from artists that, you know, from the Stones to the Beatles to, he influenced them. And so, you kind of start seeing that seep in and, you know, you and I've had this conversation. You generally ignore the mountain in your backyard. Most Memphians don't even really have, I don't think have a huge appreciation or, or even go to Graceland. Whereas people from all over the world come to West Tennessee and Memphis to just experience being where he was. Always been fascinating to me that Elvis is probably less popular in Memphis than any other place in the universe, whereas, but although there are segments of people who are Elvis fans, you know, a lot of people in media and entertainment and, you know, music, you know, who are in, in Memphis, I think are Elvis fans, but I grew up not really understanding, but being as perplexed as, you know, other people who the only time they really saw Elvis was on the local news during Elvis week when the fans would be here and people would look, you know, the news would always be there. And, you know, my opinion as somebody who worked there was they would always look for the craziest person, you know, in a line to go to and interview. And so that was about my exposure um, for a long time. Um, when, when did you first start working on programming around Elvis week? Man, I think that was 2000, uh, the year 2000. Um, it, this is, you know, most people will not remember this, but Graceland, and this includes you because you were there at the time. This is right before we met. Graceland was way ahead of the curve about taking advantage of this new thing called the internet. I'm doing air quotes right now, the internet <laughs> and trying to broadcast. This was crazy at the time. People were like, what, what are you talking about? We're going to broadcast the uh, candlelight vigil and do several hours of professional programming from the front lawn. And people can watch it on this thing called a computer screen. And of course, it was so new in 2000 that I think people in other continents were trying to tune in. But I, it, it took, I think, a moment to gain traction. I think that same thing would be humongous today, but it was really ahead of its time. 
And so to answer your question, I was part of that broadcast of what I thought was very groundbreaking and what they called the vigil cast being live on the internet with a professional TV show with boom cameras and different locations and interviews and music. And you could only see it on the internet, but it took you to the front lawn of Graceland for the first time live during the overnight vigil. Pretty, pretty cool, really. And we uh, partnered with the, the very young company AOL. And so right. AOL was a partner with us. And I remember those meetings to, to try to set this up and organize it. And, you know, you're right. I mean, it was completely out of the box and, you know, was it going to work? We didn't know if it was going to work or not, but it was a blast putting it together. Do you recall, I actually saw the other day uh, in my collection of VHS tapes, I saw a copy of that. I need to get it out and watch it again. But do you recall who did we have as our special guests? Man, I don't, I don't recall. I remember sitting in trailers and trying to figure out everything that was going to, cause it was so new. And, you know, we did it a couple of years, what three right. or four or five years. And so we yeah. had, we had a lot of decent guests. We I had, I remember. do remember, I remember uh, Priscilla Presley's parents. Wow. That's right. That's We're right. And who has ever, I, and whenever have you ever seen them other than that? I haven't. That's yeah, right. I, I remember that it had been raining and so the ground was kind of moist, you know, and yeah. a little bit muddy. And uh, Priscilla's mother was sitting in a theater chair. And I remember noticing that the front legs were slowly <laughs> starting to sink into the mud. And so I reached my hand out and held onto the back of the chair so that so that it wouldn't fall into the mud. I think we had the uh, some members of the TCB band. Um, yeah. Elvis's musicians. I don't know if it was that year, but who did you, you, another year you got put back in the, where you, you were back in the uh, jungle room or somewhere yeah. in the back of the house where we interviewed maybe some, some fans. I think you started interviewing the fans anyway. I can't remember, but yeah, you're right. We, we really did that for a long time. Now, do you recall where you and I first actually met and became friends? I remember you being at all of this, this, chaos. You know, we, we kind of got introduced um, somewhere amongst all the chaos of starting this thing up. And it was really exciting because nobody had ever done anything like it. And that we just sort of, uh, I, I could tell we were like-minded, you know, we had the same values. We had fa growing families. We were both had little kids about the same age. And, you know, I, as you know, it's always so rewarding to find someone who is like-minded, who has uh, sort of some of the same thoughts and beliefs. And anyway, it's been a great friendship for me. Well, ditto. And I remember exactly where it was. We were on the carport of um, Elvis's house, Graceland, and we, we were waiting to start shooting something and we just started talking and we realized we had a lot in common. And then, and then you started asking me about Elvis tribute artists. And um, I, said, I've never been, I've never seen an Elvis tribute artist actually perform. And you said, well, hey, let's go to an Elvis tribute artist contest tonight, right now. As soon as this is over with, you ready to go? And so I said, well, why not? I'm not usually very spontaneous, but I thought, you know what? This sounds kind of crazy. I'll go with this Marge Thrasher of 2000 and we'll, <laughs> we'll go to, um, and, and so tell me a little bit about how you got involved in that whole um, operation with Doc Franklin and, you know, introduce folks who don't know about it to the world of tribute artists. Well, interestingly enough, back then when we had that conversation, they were known as impersonators. 
they were not tribute artists, which is now the universal uh, comment. But when you and I met, I do remember that conversation and talked about that. Memphis had a thriving, I want to call it, I want to call it underground, gritty Elvis impersonator contest that happened every year. Not many people knew about it locally. And it was held every year at this, at the ballroom of a hotel near the airport. I'm not going to name the hotel because it was sort of seedy. It was not a top-notch, super fancy hotel, and it was not in a great area, but it had been going on so long in this, and they even, even the ballroom was like underground, if I remember correctly. You felt like you were dark. in a cave. Yeah, like it subterranean. And it was so real, though. It, it was filled with so many people from across the country who had traveled in trailers and pulling RVs and came to this small, dark, subterranean airport hotel in Memphis, and it was impersonators of all stripes and ilks from the incredibly talented to the ones who should have never been up there. Uh, and some were from Japan, some were women. In fact, one year there was a kid whose dream was to do it. And I think he was a paraplegic and he had a chair that lifted him up for the grand finale and stood him up and he got a standing ovation. It was like another world. And most of Memphis didn't know about it. And that's what I drug you to. <laughs> You did. And, and I really didn't know about it either. You know, I mean, of course, working in the Elvis business, I was aware of Elvis uh, impersonators. And, you know, I knew that we um, as a as an organization didn't authenticate any or didn't we just kind of ignored it. It was kind of a blind spot for us because we didn't know quite what to do with it. So um, I do remember going there and just being blown away by the whole subculture aspect of it. And what really stood out to me was just the incredible passion that a lot of these performers had. And so whether they were great or not, they just loved Elvis a hundred percent. You know, you're not going to be an Elvis impersonator or tribute artist if you're not passionate about Elvis and the music. And um, there was a lot of authenticity and you introduced me to Doc Franklin. Do you, do you remember a little bit of his story and what got him into this? Yeah. So Doc Franklin was Elvis's vet for many years and took care of the horses and the animals. And now Doc Franklin, who has passed away, told me this story because I, I really got to know him pretty well over the years of going to this, this uh, program. In fact, at one point I was a judge. You know, a couple of years I was a judge. I just got real involved. Doc told me that he had Elvis impersonators performing back when Elvis was alive and then at that stage, it was super early in the game. Elvis was there, and he was, he was not at the uh, shows, but he was in Memphis. And that it was largely truck drivers who would come into his club. I think it was called Bad Bob's Vapors or something down there. And that he said he even invited Elvis at one point to come to one of these shows. And Elvis declined and said that, you know, that just wouldn't work, me coming in there. He was just a, too global. But he said, but hey, Doc said, Elvis told him, God bless. I'm flattered. And, and, you know, for anybody who's completely unaware of what we're talking about here, you know, in the Elvis world, there are people who are pro Elvis tribute artists and people who are anti, and there's a lot of passion on both sides. What we did at some point along the way 
is decide as as an organization, Elvis Presley Enterprises decided to have the ultimate Elvis tribute artist contest. And so, of course, it was logical when we were trying to find somebody to host it that we would go to uh, Joey Selipek because we knew that he he knew a lot. Do you recall much about our very first one, which now they've had the probably 11th or 12th one by this point? But Yeah, yeah, we've had, I think, 12, maybe more than that. But I do remember the first one, and it was top secret. And it was, nobody knew about it except for a closed group. So they brought in three Elvis performers who would soon be known forever as Elvis tribute artists, ETAs, which was groundbreaking and a great idea by Graceland. And it was at a local nice hotel. They, you guys rented out the, like a little concert venue area. And I remember I was emceeing and it was very new and cutting edge. And you, you had flown in some Graceland execs from L.A., a lot of the ad- admin was standing at the back wall. You had a little group that you had brought in, like a crowd, to see how they did. And I introduced these three performers, and it they went bonkers. It was just – here's the thing that most people, I don't think, understand. Elvis has been a caricature to many for a long time, which is really not fair to him. It's a it's – a, it's, a, uh, it's lazy to caricature Elvis. But when you're talking about these ultimate Elvis tribute artist contests or these performers, you don't have to really even be an Elvis fan to enjoy it. And that's what gets people. If you just like energy and music and spectacle and athleticism, you find yourself being pulled into this and going, I had no idea. And that's, that's what it was like that first show. And I think every, you, you tell me your, your version, it seems like everybody kind of went, wow, this is something right here. Yeah. I mean, for, Years and years and years, you know, I would tell people, you know, a lot of times we would work with music executives from New York or L.A. And, you know, eventually Elvis Presley Enterprises was sold um, or someone invested into it and their organization, you know, brought in folks from, you know, the um, CKX. And I remember Jonathan and and, uh, Jared and um, all these all these folks from New York came down and I tried to explain it into words, you know, how cool this is. But when you're actually there in the energy and you're hearing the fans and the music. And I mean, I get goosebumps now just thinking about, you know, we would all look at each other with, you know, wide eyes and say, man, more people need to experience this. And so, you know, it grew and grew and grew and grew. And so eventually, you know, it was a really big part of Elvis week and part of the whole Elvis fan experience. We would go on cruises and, you know, it was just really a fun, it was a fun aspect, but it was only one small aspect of the Elvis world. Do you recall, I mean, since that time, you've interviewed all kinds of people who worked with Elvis um, on stage during uh, programs and events that we've had. Do you recall anybody in particular that stands out that you've interviewed from the Elvis world that was um, interesting or that you're glad you got to talk to? I think interviewing Joe Gershio, who was Elvis's concert leader, was a special moment for me. Joe was the band director for Elvis during some of those giant productions and Vegas shows. And I was talking to him. We were on that Elvis cruise that was going to the Bahamas. And he and I were just sitting chatting before we went out in the amphitheater where I was going to interview him. And so I just got some real downtime with him. And I said, I said, what's a good memory for you? And he said, you know, I really love the memory of how we came up with his opening, you know, the 2001 opening to his concert, that whole 
That's iconic Elvis opening. And everybody, I think, on the planet recognizes it now as an opening to Elvis's concert. And he, I said, well, where did that come from? He said, we were doing a show in Vegas. Everybody was exhausted. They needed a break. And so Elvis said, that's it. Let's just let's, let's take a break. Everybody go blow off some steam. We're too tired. And he said, uh, I think he went with Elvis. And they went to a local theater there in Vegas and sat down. In 2001, A Space Odyssey was in the theaters at the time. And he said... Um, that song came on, which is iconically in that, in that movie, and that he and Elvis looked at each other, and, El- and, and Joe said, he said to Elvis, that's our new opening. And they agreed from sitting there, and it became, of course, one of the most widely recognized, I think, concert openings of all time. And So that was a cool, cool little interview moment with them. Yeah, I think that's probably one of my favorite parts about the whole Elvis world are the people like those, um, like Joe Gershio, who was Elvis's band leader, who, uh, you know, hearing their stories and, and hearing them tell what they remember was always fascinating to me. I've got one other memory. This one's funny to me, and I don't tell it a lot. Everything in Graceland inside the house is super protected and, and sort of sacred. Don't touch, don't sit, don't, you know. Well, there was an American Idols. I remember the year the American Idols were there. And um, a really big year. A lot of big stars came out of that year. And they're still big stars. But anyway, we, we were there all day filming because we were a Fox affiliate. So we had access. And somehow I ended up in the jungle room to do, a, to do like a little commercial taping. It was just me and my photographer. Nobody else because the whole house was locked down for this, this filming for American Idol. And man, I was, you know, you're terrified to touch even a a railing when you're walking through Graceland, but you're not allowed in the jungle room. And so here we had access to the actual furniture shag, the whole thing. Well, my photographer, and I'm walking around like I'm walking on eggshells. Well, my photographer left. And so I'm just sitting there by my, or standing there by myself. And I thought, I'm going to sit on this couch. I'm going to sit on the famous Elvis's jungle room couch that probably he has sat on many times. And I'm going to just sit here and savor it because there's nobody around. And I'm, you know, so I sit down and I, as soon as I sat down, I felt like I shouldn't be doing this. I'm going to get arrested. Super guilty, but ex- extremely excited at the same time. And I hear a noise to my right, which is where the little walkway is by Elvis's kitchen. That's where you usually walk when you pass through as a tour or whatever. And I look up and Priscilla Presley is standing there looking at me. And I, I am, I, you know, I'm terrified. My eyes are wide as a dinner plate. I can't speak. And she goes, huh? And I'm still looking at her. And she goes, you look good there. And she turned around and kept walking. And I remember, (laughs) I remember sitting there thinking, did that actually happen? She was so kind to not berate me or tell me, get off my couch. And of course I jumped up immediately and never sat again there. But uh, that was a fun little moment for me with me and my good friend Priscilla. <laughs> so I think um, that is an interesting aspect of the whole Elvis uh, story is um, Priscilla and how she and Jack Soden, who is still the president, how they had the idea to open Graceland you know, to the public and make make that open to uh, the rest of the world. And, you know, I can honestly say I worked with her for years and I mean, just kind, gracious, smart, you know, she knew, um, she had just really great 
um, instincts, you know, on how to run a business and, you know, just a really uh, impressive businesswoman, you know, and I think most people that worked with her, you know, around Graceland would, would say the, th- the same thing. My, my favorite Priscilla story is we, uh, we opened this episode with Viva Elvis by Cirque du Soleil. And at some point, somehow, um, she and I ended up with a whole bunch of other people and we were watching one of the preview uh, performances of the Cirque du Soleil Elvis show um, and she wanted to make some notes and I have no idea how I ended up next to her. I was not someone of great import um, uh, and so I held her phone so the light would shine and as people would turn around, you know, people are, this was open to fans and the public and as people would be sitting there ready to watch the show and they would turn around and they would see Priscilla Presley. And so it was, just, I could see them like nudge the person next to them and say, look, look back there. And people would turn around and, you know, anyway, she was very, very smart, very intuitive. Um, and it was a pleasure working with her. Um, what, uh, of all of your years of working, you know, with the Elvis team and, you know, what other, what, what are some of your favorite moments um, that, that involve the fans or the staff? you know, or the people that are working behind the scenes to, 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 to make it happen. You know, it's, it's, you and I've had this conversation before. It's like throwing back the um, curtains uh, at the wizard of Oz and seeing how it all works. And it is fascinating because that team, they have to do a lot and they have to work with, as you have, and they are doing now, they have to work with media from across the planet, not just locally, in U.S., but you've got to deal with media from Japan, from Ireland, from from places that you know customs are different and techniques are different, and it's a very interesting little universe. Um, I love seeing all that in action. That's that's electric, and uh, dealing with guests, you know, walking around behind the scenes and seeing how the fans are facilitated and treated and respected the fans at Graceland the guests are respected and the, the, you know how they're taken care of so my favorite moments are just the the spectacle and the magic of being at Graceland during key events those visual cast moments again were fantastic being at the candlelight vigil if you haven't experienced it it's surreal I, you know and I can't I probably have had hundreds of people that I have encouraged to come to an Elvis event whether it's a candlelight vigil or an ETA contest, every one of them to a person would say that was, that was not what I was expecting. It was much, much more. It was much more magical and they usually end up coming back. So it's after 20 something years, it's hard to think of one. I think what I take more out of it are the friendships I've developed like yourself, like some of the great people that are still at Graceland, but just seeing year after year of, fans love it's just such a positive thing you know we got a lot of negative in the world clearly uh maybe never more so than in 2020 but being there year after year it's it's kind of like a disney world a happiness place where people are actually happy to see each other and there's great music and a great vibe and it's always fresh it's kind of like it's the craziest thing but it's really been a blessing for me I, i you know do you have one that stands out 
You know, I mean, there are so many for me, just magical moments that happened that we would all look at each other and say only at Graceland, only in Elvis world. Um, I remember one time we were doing the, the uh, vigil cast that you talked about and it had clouded up and it was just obvious that we were about to get um, hit. And I mean, the, the rain was going sideways and I actually had all my notes and everything I was ready and it was just completely the ink had just so I just threw it away and I was h- hovered underneath a bush. Um, yeah, I remember. Waiting, I remember that. You remember this waiting for the that. rain to stop, and there was a man next to me, and so we he and I just started talking while we were just absolutely under a bush. Um, under a bush and it was you know he said his name was Mojo Nixon, and yep. I, of course I knew enough. I'm not a huge uh, you know music historian, but I knew enough to know that Mojo Nixon is somebody. And so I said, "Hey, would you like to be on our vigil cast?" He said, "Sure." So we took him up. I don't know if you interviewed him or Rod Starnes or let me now let me pick it up there because I remember a soaking wet Scott and Mojo Nixon walking up to me, <laughs> and and you said. I just found this guy under a bush and, and the rain had like blown out monitors. Things were spitting sparks, but we were still going. And Mo, you were both were soaked to the, to the skin. And Mojo was wearing a pair of cutoff jean shorts and a, a loud country western like button up the front metal buttons shirt. Everybody's wet. And there's Eustine with Mojo Nixon. And it was just a bizarre moment. <laughs> yeah, so there were a lot. There are a lot of uh, things like that that you know, it, myself and the folks that work there, and then the Elvis fans, and we all just really, ultimately, at the end of the day, you've got all these different people, and everybody's there for one reason, you know, and that's because of Elvis Presley. And you know, I think the other, my other favorite part, you know, really doesn't involve a lot of people, but it's always the candlelight vigil. There is a sound. There's a smell. There's a feeling that you get at the candlelight vigil. So always after all of us, no matter where you're from, if it were executives from New York or, you know, people from the movie company from LA or Memphians or everybody gathered together at the end of the day, all, everything just kind of stopped and everybody focused on Elvis and, um, on paying respects to him and remembering him. Um, and so that was always um, a lot of fun um, and, and a meaningful experience uh, to go through the candlelight vigil. And I mean, honestly, everybody needs to go through the candlelight vigil at least once in their life. There's just, just nothing like it. Let me ask you a question. In your time there, I want you to name drop for a minute. How many celebrities came through either on the down low or even had a personal tour? Because you personally and your team had to facilitate a lot of high profile people. And that's, a, it's its own strange, bizarre world is when you're dealing with celebrities coming through Graceland. Do you remember some names? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you could, of course, all the American idols. Um, I remember when, when it stands out to me was Elvis Costello um, was really cool. And I was showing him around. He said, you've got a fascinating job, you know, <laughs> And I was thinking, yeah, dude, your whole music icon uh, job is pretty cool, too. Um, But yeah, it just and the thing about it is no matter how big they are, when they come to Graceland, they're nobody. You know, they're just like me and you. You know, they're all they they walk into um, where all the gold records are. And they're just, you know, speechless over and over and over. I mean, everybody who's worked there um, has seen has seen that has seen 
you know, people who know how hard you have to work to get those things walk in and just be blown away by the magnitude of just the gold and platinum uh, records that Elvis had, you know. So I've seen the Elvis brand, you know, to use a word, go up and go down and be popular at one point and less popular at another. Um, what do you think um, is, is the future of, you know, people ask me this question all the time. Do you think it's going to go away when all the baby boomers die? What do you think? Well, it's funny because common sense would say yes, but I don't think it is just from what I've seen over 20 plus years. It, it, there's something unique about it. Um, not just, I mean, you got to look at all the different components. You can't really measure him against anybody else. Um, let's like say a Frank Sinatra. When I think of Sinatra, he's really in one sort of genre, kind of that crooner. That's who he is. And that's great. Or if you think of, you know, Prince just passed away recently. Prince, who was a great musician. Prince had his genre. Elvis was so different because he's, you know, first of all, he spanned three, three plus decades of music. Well, the 50s, 60s, 70s, those were all three different musical genres. So you could be a fan of three different kinds of music and find something you like in him. He also had the very unique uh, uh, sort of setting of being in all these films. So he's captured on film everywhere at all these points in his life where he was extremely charismatic. Now, let's take into account that he is influencing all the other influencers. He wasn't just a influencer. He was kind of the influencer who kicked rock and roll, you know, through the door and brought, you know, classic African-American Mid-South music. He blended that, you know, and he was very open in his appreciation of that and the black artists. And he propelled it out into the universe. Uh, he was just a lover of music and people. So you've got this very unique, generous character who's larger than life, who spans all these things. So Again, getting back to your question, common sense would say, well, eventually he's not here anymore. However, when you've got movies, DVDs, and you've got a thriving tribute artist who can recapture just sometimes just a little facet of his energy, it, it brings everything back to life. And I think that's been a key for me, been a key motivator. I was never blessed enough to see Elvis perform live. You know, I've seen some big performers. Garth Brooks is fantastic. Would have loved to see Elvis live, but seeing one of these performers who try to recreate that moment keeps it kind of keeps it fresh and alive. It's just a unique situation. And 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 one thing I don't know if we mentioned it or not, but but those Elvis tribute artists are oftentimes, you know, I mean, they've spent years perfecting their art. They're wearing four thousand dollar jumpsuits. You know, they're oftentimes, you know, in their 20s and they really do put on an incredible performance that in some way touches back to Elvis in a way that I think helps helps keep the experience alive. Um, there's a, you know, I don't know, I guess, you know, there's a, an Elvis biopic coming in 2021. Have you heard about that? Is this the one with Tom Hanks? Yeah. Tom Hanks plays Colonel Parker. Right. So I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, have you, have you heard anything about it? Have you seen any clue? I haven't. I don't have yeah. a clue how, I don't know what it's going to be like. I haven't either. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I remember when Disney uh, came out with Lilo and Stitch yep. and wanted yep. to have an entire, an entire Elvis uh, element to the whole thing, which they did. And we did the premiere at Graceland, you know, and had a right. big wow. 
Um, so uh, I remember that. And so that, that kind of brought Elvis back to the forefront. Um, I know that there have been projects like Cirque du Soleil, like the uh, Broadway show um, that was uh, Viva, that was, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was the Elvis Broadway show that was really, um, really successful and a lot of fun. Um, so there's just been all these different touch points that I think make Elvis uh, bring him back for people who maybe weren't aware. Um, one, one memory that stands out for me was during an Elvis week, a father came up to me, I guess because I had a clipboard with ink dripping off of it that made me look important. And he said, hey, come here. I want to ask you a question. You know, and I said, yes, what can I do for you? And he had two little girls with me. He said, what are you guys doing to my kids? You know, my wife and I, we, we don't even know anything about Elvis, but our daughters are huge Elvis fans. Wow. You know, and, and for their ninth birthday, this is what they wanted was a trip to Elvis week for Graceland. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how it just keeps perpetuating itself and, and how at the end of the day, it really is about his body of work that he left behind. Well, he's, he's a, a huge part of not just Memphis history, but American history, a music history. And so if you're a history fan, there's that. And the fact that <laughs> you still hear his music today being peppered into songs, movies, remakes, redubs, remixes by current DJs. Uh, it's just, it's a phenomenon that hasn't lost a lot of steam. And I want to say this, I, I, you may have heard this story too. Jack told me the story one time that when he made the crazy decision to open Graceland to the public, the thought process at the moment was to sell it, I think, um, to sell the grounds to help provide for the family, which is a normal thing. And I think Jack was visionary and said, let's, let's try to open this up because people had thronged to the gates and were just standing there after Elvis passed. And he said, and I don't think you would mind me sharing the story because it's just so endearing. They were all so nervous that it wasn't going to work or how was it going to go that he was up all night and that as dawn was breaking, he and some of the other employees ran into each other. And here's Jack sweeping the grounds with a broom in preparation of, is this going to work or not? Is this, was this a mistake? You know, how, how let's, what do we do now? Because it was all so fresh. The death was fresh. And he said, he's out there sweeping it as dawn breaks up all night. And he looks out and there's a line of people waiting to get in the first day. And it has just not slowed down from there. Yeah, I think, you know, a, a lot of what you just said brings back a lot for me of Jack Soden, who I think deserves, you know, a ton of credit, both for making Elvis and Grayson available to so many people, but also sort of reinvigorating the Memphis uh, tour and travel business. 35%, at least when I was there, 35% of the visitors to Grayson are international. Right. You know? And so he really, his vision for opening it um, and also his ability to manage, I, there are no books about how to manage <laughs> no. um, a brand like Elvis Presley. And so Jack had just the perfect amount, you know, of knowing when to, when to move, when to, you know, one, one bit of business um, advice he gave me one time. Um, I was always kind of hyper and always kind of ready to move and ready to make a ready to act, you know, and, and one time I remember, I don't know what it was about, but he said, Scott, sometimes the decisions make themselves, you know, and so sometimes I hear his voice saying that to me, you know, when I'm trying to figure out to go left or right. So um, anyway, he was, yeah, he was, um, he is um, an amazing guy, an amazing leader um, in Memphis and yep. you know, the Elvis fans owe a lot. 
uh, to him. Somebody out there has got to do a documentary on the business of Elvis and opening well, Graceland to the public and, and historically what happened. Um, I'm sure the, um, that there's a lot of stories that you and I don't know about <laughs> that, uh, that would be fascinating. Oh, I mean, think of, and think about all he's had, they've had, all of them, Jack on down have had to maneuver a changing landscape. You know, I, not just let's say where we are right now this year and all the challenges it faces, but the challenges over the years. And like you said, waxing and waning publics and, just an astounding ride. He, you're right. I wish there would be a documentary or a book because how it, it touches it touches everybody. It touches everybody. Well, I remember when uh, one time Jack said, um, "I know it's Friday afternoon, but I need you to do me a favor and stick around and uh, be in this meeting with this guy who wants to talk about um, an Elvis uh, being on the radio channel." And so, you know, we got pitched things constantly, and so I just kind of went through the motions, looking at my watch, you know, really wishing I could could leave for the for the weekend. And you know, the guy started making his pitch, you know, about this radio station or this this new uh, radio uh, that would be satellite driven that would put channels all over the United States. And it was actually uh, Sirius Radio pitching us on an all Elvis channel, you know. And so, you know, I, I then started paying attention, you know, waiting for the, and it will only cost you, you know, $40 million. And, you know, so anyway, that, that didn't come. And they really did, they really did want to just get Elvis as one of the channels on Sirius. And to this day, you know, Elvis on Sirius XM is one of the most popular uh, channels um, on uh, Sirius XM. And where is it broadcast from? It's broadcast. Uh, right. How could I forget that? That was a big part of the pitch um, was uh, they were going to broadcast live from Graceland. And so we every built day, a, yeah. every day and we built a booth and there's some really talented DJs, a few that were there almost from the beginning that are still there, that are still um, reporting from Graceland every single day. And I listen to them sometimes here, you know, when I'm in my car, I listen to um, Elvis radio and Sirius XM. So that's always, that's a, that's a big, uh, that was a big interesting part of working, you know, with Elvis was people like Sirius XM, you know, in New York, in LA, people who know entertainment and know entertainment brands had such a respect and such a passion for Elvis. And so they would immediately come to us with some great ideas, you know, that we got to put into place. So I wish, I, I don't know if you can tell it here or not. I wish you could tell the story about being in the embassy and when you said that, how that all went down about, uh, all the stress. I don't know if you could tell that story, but that to me has always stuck out at me as amazing. Yeah. I'm, um, you know, we, when I later on had a job in Washington, DC and we ended up uh, having an issue and having to go to one of the international embassies. Um, and there were, you know, it was, it was a tense situation and around the room, you know, people, there were a lot of frowns and there were a lot of serious faces um, and I was with a really good, someone who became a really good friend of mine, uh, Shelby, and we were um, in there and Shelby um, had the good uh, idea to break the ice by mentioning that I was from Memphis and I had worked at um, Elvis Presley Enterprises. The whole room brightened up and everybody smiled and said, ah, Elvis, you know, and so these guys started telling me all these Elvis stories and they were from a whole nother country. And so there's just a magic to Elvis and his body of work that just, I don't think can be said of really anybody else who's ever lived in the entertainment business. 
yeah, huge impact for not, not just West Tennessee, but America. So what, um, what are you doing to celebrate uh, or to commemorate um, Elvis since, since we're not going to, they're not going to have Elvis week um, um, physically. I know they're going to have the candlelight vigil, but the folks at Graceland have worked really hard to put together a, a digital Elvis experience that folks can, can get from Graceland.com. Uh, I'm assuming Graceland.com yep. is where they can go. Um, wh- are you going to go to the candlelight vigil or what are you doing this year? I'm thinking about going to the vigil. You know, this year, of course, has made everything different and we all have our different comfort levels. And so I'm not really sure. I think I'm going to check out one of the online ETA performances. They're going to put several of those online, which is a great opportunity. I don't know that they've ever done that before. Uh, Made it available online for people to see. They're going to show some of the past performances and they have been over the top. And so that's going to be pretty cool. I might check that out. The other thing I always do, Scott, you know, some, because you, when you do it for so many years, you have kids and families and uh, things you have to do. I always find myself as I near August, making sure it used to be, you know, tapes, then CDs. And now it's my streaming. I'm listening to Elvis music wherever I drive, just kind of getting back in the vibe. And it's always, it's, it, you know, music is a lot about memories. And so it, it's really fun just to kind of, put those songs in, enjoy being in Memphis, knowing that um, it's such a unique time here. Well, and, and what's going to be cool this year is it'll be fun to watch the stuff online. And I'm hoping they have the episode. Um, I know people are probably sick of hearing you and me reminisce, but um, <laughs> the, the, um, el- the very, and anybody who was there that night, we all remember how special it was. The, I don't, I don't remember who was performing, but all of a sudden we were at the Orpheum and there was a, a fire detector had gone off, a smoke detector. And so it was just a loud blaring. And so we had to stop down. And of course, I'm freaking out because I got all these people in the in the Orpheum and are we going to have to leave or, you know. And so um, people were starting to have that sort of uncomfortable tittering and and getting upset. that. And so you just went out there and, and you had the band behind you. Tell me a little bit. I don't know what, I don't know how you ended up saving the day, but what did you do then? Okay. So the pace, the place was packed. We, you know, we have every age group you can think of. And when you have a fire alarm go off at the Orpheum and it's packed, you immediately are worried. Are the older people going to be able to get out? Uh, You know, are we, and so that was the first feeling of kind of semi panic. And it was right in the guy's performance who's being judged. And so there's all these emotions. It's chaotic. I quickly got word. It was not a real fire. But the thing is still going, you know, and the lights are flashing, but they said, okay, there's not a fire. And I went, okay, we don't need to evacuate, but what do we do? I had a habit during these shows of trying to come up with something in my head in case there was a disaster. I needed to fill time. Just sort of a little thing, a trick I did. Well, that particular year, I had written down the lyrics to a song thinking, okay, just in case something goes wrong this year. I'm going to write down the lyrics to a song because I can't remember all of them. And it was, if I can dream. And I went and nobody knew it. I stuck it under the drum kit, under the riser. There's a little flap there, like a little curtain on stage. And I just, I just stuck it under there. So the lyrics were there. Nobody knew they were there. So they said, okay, there's no fire, but we don't know what to do. What do we do? Everybody's kind of milling around and it's chaos. And I said, I got it. And, and the, the producer looks at me terrified as I stride out on stage with my microphone. I walked over to the band, who was always great. They could do anything, you know, in a moment. I, I said, 
I, they were like, well, what do we do? I said, all right, you're going to do if I can dream, follow me. And they were like, let's do it. So I reach under the drum kit and I pull out my, my lyrics. I'm holding this sheet of paper in my hand. They're like, what is this guy doing? And they start the dun, 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 dun. And I'm, keep in mind, the lights are still flashing and it's going meh, 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 and people are <laughs> milling around. And I'm freaking and, out because I'm trying to figure out what are we going to do if it doesn't come off? These people have paid to get in here. It's also screwed up the whole mojo of the evening. The good feelings are now suddenly people are wondering, do I need to do I need to bolt from here? You know, so anyway, carry on. Yeah, you're right. The train was going down the track so well and the train just went because of this thing. So what are we going to do? So you hear the band, the ba you can barely hear the band at first because of all the commotion. And people are like, going, what is going on here? And I, they haven't seen me do anything like this ever. I don't, I've never done anything like this. And uh, I just start singing, you know, the song. And people started kind of going, okay, I guess maybe I don't need to run for my life. Maybe there's something going on here. And so we just did this song. And in the middle of it, Memphis Jones who was running around doing his own thing for Graceland, just, you know, serendipitously got on stage, said, Hey, can I take it? And I, so I handed him the mic for like a certain chorus and he ran with it. Then he handed it back to me to finish. And it, it actually seemed like it came off. Okay. It almost seemed like it was planned. Um, yeah. The crowd just went bananas, um, standing ovation. I mean, it was incredible. It was a great, great, great moment. By the way, that's on YouTube if anybody wants to see it. Yeah, and you know what? When we play out of this thing, we're gonna we're gonna play a clip of that so that folks can hear you, you and Memphis Jones <laughs> yeah. perf performing a bit of "If I Can Dream." Yeah. Um, thank you so much for uh, introducing me to the Elvis tribute artist world, and for being my friend, and for being someone to pal around with at Elvis Week events, and for being on today's episode of the podcast. Let me say this because I know a lot of people there know you and your great work with Discovery Park and the amazing things you're doing. But just for everybody listening, the impact Scott has had, not just on West Tennessee, but uh, the Mid-South, his work here with Graceland and his visionary stuff. I, you know, I've always been in awe of what you have done for this region. You took your talents to D.C. and did a phenomenal job there. But I'm glad you're back in West Tennessee um, and doing great things for everybody here. We're, we're glad to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And it's amazing to be back. Now, the one thing I, I'm, I cannot sing at all. So now everybody listening is going to find out. Can Joey Sullipak, the Marge Thrasher of 2020 Memphis, Tennessee, can he really sing? So here you go. Thank you for listening to Real Foot Forward. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. Start planning your visit to Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. And also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates.